Luke chapter 2, uh, 21 through 35 today. The light in the glory is kind of where the Lord led me today. The light in the glory. Verse 21 says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So beginning with Abraham and then later being ratified in the law of Moses in Leviticus 12, uh, it was written that every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day of their life and then consecrated to the Lord, given over to the Lord. Circumcision is an outward sign, was an outward sign of the old covenant that God had made with his people. They were to do this if they were uh, a boy and they were the firstborn of any, any male child. And it was, a, it was a symbol that they were to be holy. They were to be separate from the rest of the world. It was a physical reminder. Uh, and this, the picture is the cutting away of the flesh, a constant reminder that God's people... They were not to be like the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They were not to be like the rest of the world who were engaging in every kind of false worship, every kind of immorality and, and all this stuff, sacrificing their children and all this type of stuff that was going on that was, that was uh, prevalent within society. They were not to be having to do anything with that. They were God's people. They were cut off from that world. They were now holy and separated and different to, uh, to the Lord. And every male child was to have that outward reminder of that supposed inward uh, inward, uh, reality. And with every physical picture in the Old Testament, there is this New Testament spiritual reality. The Old Testament is pictures and types in physical type settings for a spiritual reality that Christ would fulfill or a part of his kingdom. And so the Old Covenant was written on stone, but the New Covenant is written where? On the tablets of our hearts. You see that? It's a covenant of the Spirit. The old covenant was one of an outward sign, the cutting away of the physical flesh. But the new covenant, Paul tells us in Romans 2 verse 9, is the circumcision of the heart. The cutting away of the life of the flesh by the Spirit, he tells us. That he cuts off that old nature, that old man. And that's what he does. It's not by a written code. It's by his Spirit. And yet, we see Jesus being circumcised. He who knew no sin. What's up with that? Now, why in the world would Jesus, who has no sin, who did not sin, have to go through all of this? Well, one of the themes of the book of Luke, as we will read, is that of the humanity of Jesus, in that Jesus fulfilled the identity of, Uh, fully identified, excuse me, with mankind in our weakness. He fully identified with mankind. We're going to see in chapter 3 the baptism of Jesus. Jesus did not need to be baptized, technically, for the washing away of sins, which was John's baptism. But why did he do it? Matthew tells us to fulfill prophecy and and to fully identify with humanity, to fully identify with us. Hebrews 4.15 speaks to this. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Isn't that good knowing no matter what you've been through, what you're going through, that Jesus can relate to your circumstance? You're going, oh man, that's a great temptation to be greedy or to cheat or to lie or to do whatever it might be. He had all those temptations and all the ways that we wore in its various forms. And I would say beyond, we don't even know what happened in those days uh, that were unrecorded in the, in the wilderness and what the enemy did. We only know of three. And yet he was what? Without sin. I love that. Thank you, Lord. And so where I failed, he has not. He is my hope in my weakness. He's your hope in your weakness. And he can fully relate with, what, with the pull of all that, right? <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be, uh, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so don't think that just because Jesus is circumcised that somehow this improved his relationship with God. It did not. He was holy. Uh, do not think that because he was baptized that he somehow needed to be forgiven. That is not it. He's identifying with us fully, and I love that. No, he was fully identifying with you, and he is fully identifying with me. He was under the law of God, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.4, 4, and this is very important, everybody, to understand. Did you know Jesus was a Jew? <clears throat> just, just want to clear that up. It says, but when this, in Hebrews, uh, sorry, that's not Hebrews, that's not right. That's got to be Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive Adoption to, to sonship. Let me say that again. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And so Luke is pointing out here that Jesus is the firstborn male Jew, born under the law. His mother, Joseph, uh, his, his mother Mary and Joseph are keeping the law, bringing him to the temple on the eighth day by God's divine providence to have him circumcised. And he named him on that day and dedicated and consecrated him to the Lord just as the law commands. And verse 21 says that they named him Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. Uh, and that is what he came to do. God in the flesh saving mankind. Jesus saves. And just a few things to note real quickly. A few things to note. You see in verse 23 there, you see the parentheses with an explanation within them. Some of you have that, some of you don't. But the, you will have the explanation of what it says. This is because the person Luke is writing to is most likely a Gentile. And he needs to understand what in the world we're talking about. You know, if you were talking about football to someone who does not know anything about football, you'd kind of explain, oh, they take the ball and they threw it over there because, and you would you'd let them know why. But someone, you would need to explain it to someone who's acquainted with football. So a Jew, a non-Jew coming from the outside looking into the scriptures is going to need a little explanation. And the reason why he's going to need that explanation is because the purpose Luke is writing to him is so that he would know the certainty of what he believed. And the certainty is based upon what the word of God said. And so he's pointing them back to the prophecies and the fulfillment and all the things, the law and all that God said and commanded. And they're funneling it all in the, in the, in the, within the framework of Jesus. And so Luke is desiring to make sure that Theophilus knows the certainty of what he'd been taught. He's letting him know and he's letting us know that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law to redeem those guilty of breaking it. I love that. 
And so you see verse 24 that Joseph and Mary were keeping the law. They consecrated their firstborn son, which means devoting him to God as was required by the law. And they were to give a sacrifice of a lamb for that child. But the law says that if you can't afford a lamb, then you can do a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And we notice what, what, did, what did Joseph and Mary give? They couldn't afford the lamb. They already had the lamb, but they couldn't afford the lamb. And here they are, Joseph and Mary. They have, they have the Son of God with them. They know he's the Messiah. They, they can't afford a lamb for the Son of God. How humble, how, you know, what humble circumstances did Jesus, was he born into? Where did he come from? You know, Jesus was not an aristocrat. He loves the poor. He's well acquainted with the poor. He seeks out the poor. I love that about him. And especially the poor in spirit. Verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was a righteous man and he was devout. Simeon was a man who was serious about his relationship with the Lord. We see people who say, I'm a Christian, but their lives do not reflect it. Any of you struggle with that personally? I know I do. I say I love the Lord, and yet what I do doesn't match up with what I believe or say, which tells me there's something going on inside my heart, right, that needs to be dealt with and and, and repented of. But Simeon was a man who was really serious about his relationship with the Lord. It says there in verse 25 that he was righteous. And this would pertain to the way that he was interacting with this fellow man. He was righteous toward them. He was right acting, right standing, right living. He was thinking about them. He was loving them, right? And we see that in other places in Acts, a devout man who was charitable and all this type of stuff, speaking maybe of a centurion. But right standing... With God makes us people who act righteously towards others. Do we know that? If you are right standing with God, guess how that's going to actually play out? That's going to play out in our relationships with one another. Simeon was a righteous man. And I always think the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm zeroing in on these things is, is, is you look through these passages. There's three things. There's a couple things that popped out to me before. The law, the law, the law. And so when the scripture talks about the law, you just focus on the law. And now it talks about something else. You'll see a word that's repeated several times here in this passage. What do you think it is? We'll see it in just a second, right? There's, there's a phrase that's repeated three times. And there's something, that's the what the writer wants them to know. We'll get there. That's just a little bit of, for you to not pay attention to me and go off on a rabbit trail. This is why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. But he's right standing with God. This makes us people who act righteously towards other. And, and it also says, so he was right towards other people. Simeon was devout. He was devout. This means that he feared the Lord and took his relationship with God seriously. Where you find a man or a woman who is devoted to God and righteous towards others, you are going to find a person who is filled and taught and moved by whom? The Holy Spirit, which is repeated three times there. Ding, we got it. <laughs> but it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. This guy was a man of the word. He knew the scriptures like Daniel 9 possibly that spoke of the consolation of the comfort of Israel that God would come and redeem his people through the Messiah at an appointed time. And what the Jews back then, sadly, and sadly today, they missed is that 
His first coming was not a physical redemption, but a spiritual one, redeeming the people of God from the captivity of sin. And on his second coming, he's going to come and physically retake the earth and establish his glorious thousand-year reign. I love that. And this is why the Jews today reject that Jesus is the Messiah, is because they were looking for the peace, and it never came. They were looking for the peace, and it never came. I was listening to Dennis Prager. He was an amazing guy. But someone had called in, and they'd asked him, well, why, why do, you know, what are the Jews' concept of the Messiah? And one of the answers he gave, he says, the reason why most Jews reject that Jesus is the Messiah is because he did not bring peace. The Messiah will bring peace. And what they fail to realize is that they, how many of you like the happy, good sermons? I want to hear the happy, good sermons. I want to listen to that one. And so that's what they listened to. They didn't listen to the other half about the suffering Messiah and repentance that would be required of his people in the morning and all this type of stuff. So Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Sorry, can you flip to this one, bud? Let's turn this on. Simeon, are we there? Do we have a power outage or what? Um, it's on. I haven't changed a thing. Is the power on to that? Is the slider down? Is it unmuted? All right. So we got a problem. I'm just going to talk loud, okay? All right. Cool. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Lord Jesus, we ask that you pop this back into session here. Amen. All right. I don't think he wants us to talk about this personally, not the Lord, the enemy. But he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was, was upon him. And Simeon was waiting for Jesus. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. He is the comfort of Israel. Do you know that? Jesus is the comfort. He was the comfort. But the people of Israel, the people of God, the ones who were circumcised, the one who had the law and all these types of things, they missed him. They missed him. And, and, and we read, well, we will read in Luke 13, 34, Jesus cried over this when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent them to you, how often I long to gather you your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He's crying out to the people of God, and he's saying, I long to comfort you. I long to be your consolation, but you were not willing. It's the cry of the Father to us. I long to, and any of you who have children who are wayward and all these types of things, you long to pull them back to you and to hold them and, and to console them or whatever it might be, but they were not willing. It's what Jesus was saying. He mourned and he wept. Are you missing the Messiah this morning? <clears throat> Simeon was waiting for that consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so mark that. First thing about Simeon. Simeon was a man who had the Holy Spirit upon him. Verse 26, And it had, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's pretty cool. I like that. Yes, Lord, I want to hear that. So the Spirit was upon him, and the Spirit was what? Speaking to him. The Spirit spoke to Simeon. 
The Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah or Christ. The word Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. It means the anointed one. And the anointed one, if you were a Jew, you would know right away in your mind that that means he is who were anointed in the Old Testament. The priests, the prophets, and the kings. Jesus is the priest, the prophet, and the king. The one they're waiting for all in one. That all those things were pointing to. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the priest, the prophet, and the king. The fulfillment of all those offices. And so the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. He spoke to Simeon in verse 27, moved by what? The Spirit. He went into the temple court. So Simeon was moved by the Spirit and directed to the temple courts. And that is my prayer for us this year, that we would be a people who have the Spirit upon us, that we would be taught by the Holy Spirit as was promised, and that we would be moved by the Spirit this year. And when the Holy Spirit is upon you, and when the Holy Spirit is teaching you, you will be moved by the Spirit. And when you are moved by the Spirit, who knows where He's going to take you, and who He's going to bump you into, and what He's going to say. And it's just awesome. I want you to be a Spirit-filled people this year. I want to be a Spirit-filled person. We know from the teaching that I've, I've put, that's not a weird thing. That's a, a man or a woman filled with a love of God and the truth of God and a heart for the lost and a heart for one another. And I see that in our fellowship. And I, I just, as, as, as that is something that is Paul prayed for, I pray that you would abound in love. I pray that we would abound in that this year. Like Simeon there. And that's what he prayed and that's who he was. But verse 27b, the second part, it says, When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what was the custom of the law, uh, what the custom of the law required, verse 28, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to, gen- to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so S- Simeon, speaking by the Spirit, testifies of Jesus. Prophecy testifies of Jesus. You know, I can leave this earth now because I have seen your salvation. Think about that. That is what we long for everybody on earth, that they would see, that they would know the salvation and they can leave the earth. That's what I long for each of you, that you would know Jesus, you would know his salvation and you would be free to leave (laughs) when the Lord says it's time, right? But getting saved is not a prayer. Simeon was literally holding salvation. He picked him up in his arms. Salvation isn't isn't a prayer. It's not just confessing and, and turning from sin. Salvation is Jesus. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just an outward act. It's not just the act of turning from things. It's it's you're turning towards him. You're embracing him. You're embracing Jesus. Who is salvation. 
That's why we must continue in the Lord every day, because he is our hope. Being saved is embracing the person of Christ. He is the one who saves. And when you have Jesus, you can say, Lord, I'm good. Take me home if you want. You're the greatest treasure I have, and I long to be with you more than I do the things upon this earth. And yes, we're torn like Paul. Of course we are. God's put us in a context, has he not? He's put us in people we love and families and relationships. But do you love him more than all this? Do you long to be with him more than all of this? Is he the apple of your eye? Is he why your heart beats? Do you love me more than these? Jesus would say. Simeon says, I have seen your salvation. I have seen the one who will save. Verse 31. Which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Jesus was the light to the Gentiles in the glory of Israel. The light and the glory. These are words that kind of escape us in our culture. But he was the light and the glory. How many of you have been in a very dark place? How many of you have been out camping? And you've got to go find the toilet, wherever that is located. And it's dark, and there's no moon out. What are you longing for? You don't want to bear You don't want to fall off a cliff or stumble over something. You need light. And how many of us have those little things in our heads? We go click and and we have it. And there we are. Yes. Or you've totally lost context of where you are. And then all of a sudden you see a light, a familiar light, like driving into Walla Walla, perhaps on a foggy day or whatever it might be. And you see the the towers maybe on on the hill and you see the lights. You go, oh, there's home. I know where we are now. Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. To those who knew nothing religiously of God, to his of his righteous law, of his impending judgment, even though creation speaks of it. Don't want to talk don't dismiss general revelation, but they don't know about the scriptures. They don't know about Jesus. They don't know about the message. They don't have the Christian background or the Jewish background. Jesus was a great light in utter darkness. You know, the apostles would shine Jesus in those dark cultures and men and women caught up in the worship of false gods and the death trap of sin would be set free by faith in Christ who died to forgive them and to give them new life, life by the Spirit, something they were never exposed to. You know, I think this is what we face today. We're facing a culture that is increasingly godless. They have no clue. They, don't, they might even have just a very faint understanding of a Christian culture, but the values have eroded. There is no understanding of God and Jesus and all this type of stuff. It's just the world. It's pagan again. And let me tell you, if we're trying to reach them with a bunch of Christianese, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do that, but Jesus is the light. How, how did Jesus reach Gentiles? Well, he called them dogs. <laughs> it was wild. What did Paul do? How did he reach people? Yeah, that's how we've got to treat, figure out where we're going to. Look at how Paul reached a godless society. Maybe it was spiritual in some way. So I think that's very important. But I think this is what we are facing. A very dark, dark society. A very dark society. And Jesus will be the light to them through the church 
That is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, taught by the Holy Spirit, and moved by the Holy Spirit. Like Simeon. Into those uncharted waters. Jesus is the light of the world, he said of himself in John 8, 12. Amen? But then what did he also say in Matthew chapter 5, 14? He said, you are the light of the world. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You are now the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And so just as Jesus was on the earth shining his light to the world, now Christ in us shines through his church to the world. Amen? And so Jesus was the light of the nations, and he is the glory also of Israel, God's people. And that's who the Messiah was to be, the glory of Israel. So the non-believers, the people who had no clue about God, he was a light to them. But to the people who knew of the Lord and who had the scriptures, he was to be the glory of Israel. He was to be their high priest, their great prophet, their high king, and their savior. The only one they had been anticipating as they were entrusted with the Holy Scriptures, as Roman 3 says. It was very beneficial for them in that way. And so Jesus is both the light and the glory, Simeon was saying. Verse 33, and the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Wouldn't you? How many of you just long when you have kids or grandkids, you're like just looking for things that are special about them, right? And the things you find that are special is like, oh, they look like me. (laughs) That's why God makes them that way, so you like them. But verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, the child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. You know, Mary blessed among all women. And I think it's hard because we get tainted with the worship of Mary from the from the uh, reformed. In, uh, I mean, from the Catholic tradition and and stuff. But Mary was blessed among all women. So the scriptures declare we got to keep scriptural, regardless of what other people, however they tainted. But she was blessed among all women to be the mother of the one who would save the world. What an honor! And to watch her son from a little baby grow to be a man. Knowing from the prophecies like this that her son would be the one who causes the falling and rising of many in Israel and would be spoken against, and that Jesus would cause a sword to pierce her own soul. And I can't imagine what what it must have been like for Mary to stand there and, and see her own son mutilated in the way he was mutilated and nailed to that cross in agonizing pain and crying out the things he was crying. And she's sitting there looking at this the whole time to the very end. Until he cried out to the Father and committed his spirit. And even then beyond the grave, when he was in that tomb, But Jesus did not come to bring peace. Jesus did not come to bring peace. In a general sense, he will bring peace by war. 
But the first time around, he came to bring peace to those who would surrender to his grace, the grace of God. We have to remember what Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. Simeon's saying that this guy is going to cause the rise and fall of many. He's going to be a sign that will be spoken against. He's going to reveal what's in men's hearts. He's going to cause problems in this world. He's going to be a divider. Now, I know many of us want to to tuck it and say, well, he's also a uniter. Yes, but he divides. This is what Jesus said of himself. Whoever acknowledges me, John chapter 3, before others. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10, 32 through 39. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring uh, peace, but a what? A sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. Your enemies are going to be in your own house. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You love your mother and father more than you love Jesus, kids? You are not worthy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not saying that you don't love your mother and father. He's saying you love them with all your heart and your soul. You love them totally, but Jesus has to be even above that. And don't worry about the the things of that. He's just saying that he's got to be most important in your life. And that's something that needs to be trained by the parents. Amen? We train that. And and I remember having discussions with Ruthie. But I really love you. You know, you're here. I'm like, that's good. But there will come a day when Jesus is going to call you to love him more than you love me. And that day approaches our teenagers, doesn't it? Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is a real problem in our culture. We love our kids, and we are to love our kids, and we show it by affection. But do you love Jesus and what he says and what he says more than you love your kids? Do you let your kids rule your house? Or does Jesus rule your house? This is a struggle as parents, right? Anyone? Do your kids rule your calendar? Does Jesus rule your calendar? Are your kids onto Jesus' plan? Or are you getting your kids under, uh, you, want, you know, Jesus onto your kids' plan and say, Lord, bless this? I'm not saying they can't line up, but I mean, have you laid everything before the Lord? Have you, have you said, Lord, does this glorify you? This is how, is what in, I'm doing with my son or daughter and all that stuff. Does it glorify you? Does it please you? And when your kid kicks back and wants something and gives you a hard time, and Jesus has told you one thing, what do you do? Who do you love? Love is is very much tied to obedience, is it not? You say to your kids, if you love me, obey me. That's how you show you love. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You'll obey my commandments. This is my command that you love one another. Is this offensive? I hope it is. Jesus came to bring a sword.
Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, we don't, in that culture, we, we got crosses on our necks and our, in our ears and, and on top of our church and all that stuff. It was an execution chamber is what it was. It was a, a, an instrument of death. And they, they were terrified of it. If you do not pick up your cross and follow me, willingly lay down your life. If you don't love me more than this whole world and all these things around, you are not worthy of me. And this is why Jesus says the way is what? Wide? The way is narrow. And I don't want to paint it any wider than it should be. I'd have to answer for that. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Have you lost your life in Christ? Or are you outwardly religious and inwardly ruling your own kingdom? This is the struggle. Simeon prophesied of Jesus to Mary. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be the sign that we've spoken against. And so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So Jesus came to divide the world into two groups. Into two simple groups, those who are his and those who are not. And those who are is are identified by following what he says and does. And those who are not do not. And that's it. On the day, said Jesus, you know, of judgment, the angels will reap everybody and they'll stand before the great throne and there'll be two groups the sheep and the goats. And the, and the difference between the two is the ones actually did what he said and the others did not. Are we saved by works? No, we are not. But I tell you what, the works absolutely 100% verify that we are saved. I am an apple tree and there are no apples on that tree. We can technically look at it, but when you see the apples, you know that that is an apple tree. Jesus is looking for fruit. Amen? John chapter 3 verse 19 says the verse is this light has come into the world but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil how many of you catch your kids and stuff and you're like hey do this and they're just like no i want to continue to revel in this nonsense anyone they love it so do we we're just more refined know how to do things And the command of Jesus is that all men should repent and believe upon him to be saved because this world world is in darkness and it speaks against him because of his purity, because of his holiness, because of his righteousness. Because all of that exposes the filth of the human condition, the absolute depravity and the pride in each of us. And so when you see Hollywood talking out and talking junk about Jesus and all this type of stuff, it just is exposing their hearts. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. He is pure and good and holy and lovely. And this world is man-centered. And man at the core is not God-centered. And so, Christ spoke 
And everything he said had to do with light. When he spoke into my life, that that light invaded my world. That invaded my world. And it threatened my reign. And exposed how corrupt and selfish and prideful I was. Perhaps you can relate. Let me tell you, that love, it radiates and it exposes all at once. It's just a big wall of amazement. And so the world speaks against Christ because he reveals the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of men. And Simeon says to Mary, the sword that divides will pierce your own soul too. No one escapes, Mary. Now there are several words for sword, and the word for sword there is the biggest sword. It's used seven times in scripture. It's one you'd have to use with two hands. And that's the kind that's going to pierce Mary's soul. And I, and I, I don't know what, how to take that angle except for in the context of that word being used several other times. So is it that her, she would be, is it that Jesus will divide the world and it also cause the word will come and strike Mary's heart as well? Or is it just the sorrow that she would have experienced seeing her son? You know, I'd like to think that. But the context of that word being used all the other time is about the word dividing people. Let me give you the other context of that word sword. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword, big sword, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun in lighting of all its brilliance. So, and then another one in Revelation 2.12, he's speaking to the church at Pergamum. He writes, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And then at the end of that, when he's talking to the same church, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Same sword. And then another one, Revelation 19.15, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strike to strike down the, the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress wine of his fury, the wrath of God Almighty. So that's the context that word sword is used in. So when it says a sword will pierce your own soul too, I don't know. I just think when Jesus speaks, it's going to divide people into two camps and Mary would be faced with that word that cuts. No man escapes Jesus. He came to deliver people out of spiritual darkness by declaring them the gospel, the good news, the sword that cuts away the life of the flesh and ushers in the life of the spirit. Amen? There's no middle ground. Either we are his by believing and following him or we are not. And I thought it fitting this morning to end on this note that the coming of the new year, with the coming of the new year ahead of us, it'd be good for someone to grab the kids at this time. I believe the Lord is challenging us this morning on the dawn of the new year to commit ourselves again to him. To allow the sword of the spirit to pierce our hearts. To cut the flesh out and usher in a year of the Spirit. Where we are all filled with the Spirit, we are taught by the Spirit, and we are moved by the Spirit. Which is not going to contradict His Word. They're in harmony. Without compromise. That's my heart for us this year. Devoted to the person of Jesus Christ to the glory of God this year. That's, that's what I long for us, for me. So, so to usher in our year it's, with communion, it's fitting. I want to I end by having us do communion. Communion reminds us of the sacrifice 
that Jesus made for us. His body was broken in our place. His blood was shed to take away our sins. And as we take the bread and drink the cup, we too are identifying with Jesus. But after the uh, Uh, that we no longer live for ourselves, like Jesus didn't long live for himself, but for the uh, will of the Father. But now after the Spirit of Christ who lives in us to the glory of the Father. In other words, when we take these elements, we're saying, Lord, not only do we remember, but we are also one with you. We identify with you just as you lived. So now we live. You live in us. So Jesus came to bring a sword. And one of the most striking moments of that sword being brought about was in John chapter 6 where Jesus taught those who wanted to follow him, who said they were his disciples, a lot of them. In verse 53 of John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now instantly we're going, okay, unless I take communion, what have I been talking about? It's the life of the Spirit, not the outward thing. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is saying, I am life. In verse 60 says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Why? Because they were focused on the outward and the physical, thinking that you're going to go chew on his arm or something. Jesus was speaking words of the Spirit. In verse 66, John 6, 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. How tragic. How tragic is that? People who had seen Jesus work miracles, who had done things, who had seen the amazingness of the Messiah, God in the flesh. They saw him, they, they touched him, they handled him, they knew him. And yet he said, if, you do, if a word of the Lord came to them to divide their hearts, and they, would, they rejected it, and they followed him no longer. God is going to challenge you this year in areas of surrender. And let me tell you that life does not come unless you identify with Christ and deny yourself and follow him. And then life will flow for he is life. So as the spirit calls you this year to repent, as the spirit calls you to embrace, as the spirit calls you to cut away, as the spirit calls you to move out. And as he teaches you more about his kingdom and who he is, embrace it and follow. Let the cross identify fully with it. So you see, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he's not talking about the cracker and juice, friends. He is saying he is salvation. He saves. He is life. And unless you feast upon him, his words, his very essence, you have no life in you. But you do. If you do. Amen? (laughs) So this year, fully embrace your life. Fully embrace Jesus. Become enamored with Christ. Let him be your first love again. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and redo the first things Revelation teaches us. Eat of his flesh. Drink of his blood. And may God make us shine the light and the glory of Christ to this world this year. Amen. All right. Christine. Lord God, we ask that as we uh, move into this next 
year that you would have us fully. That there would just be a, a full devotion to your kingdom, to your cause, to you, the person of Jesus. And I ask in this time of communion that as we come to the tables, it would not be just the cracker and the juice, but it would be the person of Jesus that we're focusing on. Have us fully, Lord God, this morning. We love you. We commit the rest of our year to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to just play and feel free to come take the elements and bring them back to your, your tables and just enjoy the Lord together. Bless you.